when I think about Africa, we have 1.3 billion people living here, but only about 300 million use the internet with any sort of regularity. So there's a billion people out there that are about to get on the internet. And what's fascinating to think about is what kind of internet they will interact with? What kind of opportunities will they create? How will they solve problems? How will they create commerce opportunities? That's just a really, really profound thought around what this next billion people that will come online, what they will do with the internet. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. I'm Andrew Tarvin, humor engineer. And I'm Roman Segel, recovering marketer. Andrew and I both got our start at PNG, the Procter and Gamble company, where we both had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at PNG. In this series, through conversations with fellow PNG alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about how they got their start, how they make it work, and what keeps them going. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee, or in my case, hot chocolate. On today's show, we're talking to P&G alumni leader Nitin Gadria, Google's Managing Director for Sub-Saharan Africa. It was a great conversation about always seeking what we have in common amidst all the difference in diversity that we see in this world. Here's a quick bio. Nithin Gadria is Google's Managing Director for Sub-Saharan Africa, where he works to make the internet more helpful for Africa, leveraging technology as an enabler for amazing things. Google actually recently announced a $1 billion investment over the next five years in Africa. And having been at Google for seven years, Nithin previously led YouTube's business in India and Southeast Asia, and led Google in Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. Prior to joining Google, Nithin served as a regional marketing director for Mead Johnson Nutrition for Asia Pacific, and of course, he got his start at Procter & Gamble, rising through the ranks of brand management over 11 years across countries and categories, working on brands like Safeguard, Tide, Ariel, Vix, Olay, SK2, Pantene, Herbal Essences, Head & Shoulders, Wella, and many more. Nithin is keenly interested in tech startups and is an angel investor himself, providing smart capital to startups in Southeast Asia. As a husband and father, Nithin hails from Mumbai and has lived and worked in Sydney, Singapore, and now Johannesburg. Now, I had the privilege of briefly working in Asia with Nithin in what seems like many lifetimes ago, but what I really loved catching up with him on was hearing how his approach to work and life have not really changed that much. For him, it's about understanding people, consumers, customers, users, and their underlying motivations versus being obsessed with the next shiny object, which we often can be as technology changes every day. And Nithin's had the privilege to embark on a lot of career adventures that have taken him around the world. But despite that, he remains really grounded in providing thoughtful perspective and driving change through enabling others. You'll really enjoy hearing about the massive growth opportunity that Africa has in front of it. And honestly, the nuts and bolts of how Google is helping drive that in common cause with the African people and how innovation exists in a very different way on the continent than it does in many other parts of the world. So let's dive right in. We hope you'll enjoy our conversation with Nitin Gadria. Nitin, welcome to the pod. It's really great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Nithin, a lot of folks know your professional story. You're Google's managing director for Sub-Saharan Africa, working to make the internet more helpful for all of Africa. And in fact, recently, Google announced a $1 billion investment in Africa. You've been at Google for seven years in leadership roles across Southeast Asia, including India, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. You spent time at Mead Johnson Nutrition. And of course, you got your start at P&G, working over 11 years across countries and categories in Southeast Asia on brands and beauty, home, and health. And you're actually an angel investor, providing smart capital for tech startups across Southeast Asia. 
you're a husband and a father, you were raised in Mumbai, and you've lived and worked across Sydney, Singapore, and now Johannesburg. And there's a lot in there that I want to ask about just to catch up. But first, can you tell us a story about something before your career journey began? Can you tell us a story of something that impacted you when you're growing up in India? Yeah, sure. Wow. So many memories and it feels a little bit of a long time ago, but in a galaxy galaxy far, far far away indeed. (laughs) One of the things that has been an enduring memory for me as a child is as kids, our paternal grandparents lived in Japan and our maternal grandparents lived in Singapore. And once a year, my paternal grandparents used to fly in from Japan and they'd fly in on this flight that landed late at night. So that was the one night that we were allowed, my brother and I were allowed to sort of stay up and wait for them to come in and we'd have them unpack immediately. And the main reason for that is one thing that we always got in the suitcase from Japan was these Nintendo Game & Watch, the single screen games, the 4-bit games Mm -hmm. from back in the day. And that I recall that as my first interaction with technology. Those were just wonderful devices that they were magical devices that could do ridiculously amazing things. Now, of course, we've come a long way as far as gaming and digital devices and so on are concerned. But that has been one of my most enduring memories that relates back to technology. And this is it's the first time that I remember being interested in technology. What's interesting about that, multiple generations have had the impact of technology and microcomputing. But I think it was our generation, our interaction with tech was almost a leisurely one. I remember my dad brought home a giant IBM computer, and the first thing I wanted to do was find games and install (laughs) games. And so I think we always had this fun interaction, this fun and fearless interaction with technology as an entertainment thing, not just as a tool. No, I think think that's spot on. One of the things that I find really fascinating now is we grew up with technology, right? Technology was especially... Digital technology was sort of evolving as we were growing up and we grew up with the internet. We went from sort of the dial-up connections to faster connections and we went from text-only internet to the wonders of the visual vibrancy of the internet today. And then we went into smartphones. And so our habits sort of evolved with the evolution of the internet. What I'm incredibly fascinated by is half the world has never used the internet today right? A little less than half the world has never used the internet. And they will start using the internet soon. And how they experience getting into the internet at this stage of its evolution as a starting point, rather than starting with the rudimentary forms of the internet. That journey is incredibly fascinating for me to think about and to watch. Well, I want to ask a question that kind of spans generations. In the West, in America, in Europe, we did have dial-up and the overpriced IBM computers and Macs and all those things. But you grew up in India, which left a lot of things. A lot of people's first computing device was a phone and was SMS. And now you're working in Africa, where they're just leapfrogging completely to the first device being a smartphone, which is a supercomputer in your pocket. What was that difference in India? Your first computing device, as you mentioned, was a watch from Japan. A lot of the consumers that you served was a phone sending SMSs and transferring money. What do you think about that leapfrogging kind of factor as someone who grew up in a very different state than a lot of us in the West did with with technology? It is fascinating. I will say that, yeah, we we had the pains of dial-up internet in India as well. Probably wasn't as widely used as many parts of the West. There weren't AOL CDs on every block. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is true. What I'm finding fascinating right now, actually, is to watch new internet users, right? People 
that have grown up without the internet and they're suddenly getting access to a smartphone, they're suddenly getting access to the internet and the world's information at their fingertips. And that is such an incredibly empowering moment. When I think about Africa, just let's let's talk about Africa for a second. When I think about the continent, we have 1.3 billion people living here, but only about 300 million of these 1.3 billion people use the internet with any sort of regularity. So there's a billion people out there that are about to get on the internet. We know that there are about 300 million people that will come online in the next five years. And what's fascinating for me to think about is what kind of internet they will interact with. What will they do with access to the internet? What kind of opportunities will they create? How will they solve problems? How will they create commerce opportunities? Right? So it's for me, that's just a really, really profound thought around what this next billion people that will come online, what, what they will do with the internet. Well, and again, it's because they're leapfrogging. There's so much of, call it the growth curves and the growth pains and the evolution that we've endured over the past two decades. They're going from zero to 60 exactly. overnight in some cases. Well, and we're going to come back to this a little bit, but I want to backtrack a little bit to your early life. Back then, that little kid with the Nintendo watch from your grandparents, what did you actually want to be when you grew up? I think that evolved as time went. I think my earliest aspiration was to be a pilot. <laughs> and then I think my next aspiration was to play cricket for India. <laughs> I did play a lot of cricket in my life, but I was never really good enough for any sort of reasonable competitive level. So I'm, I'm glad I did, did not pursue that particular <laughs> Yeah, so I think, I think those were, those were the, probably the first two career aspirations that I can remember. What was the first way that you actually made money? My first paying job was selling timeshare holidays. And I did this as a summer internship at some point. And it was a terrible, terrible experience, I have to say. <laughs> it involved cold calling the medical community for some reason. That company that I was, that, that I was working for that summer they built this package which was aimed at doctors mainly. So I remember walking the streets of Mumbai, going from one doctor's clinic to the next and trying to sell them timeshare holidays. I did not get paid a salary. I was For that summer, I was purely paid a commission for anything that I sold. And the only one timeshare that I sold that summer was actually to my grandfather. Hmm. If we kind of jump back to today, how would you say you're similar to that, that younger version of yourself? Or, or how are you different? I think diving into the unknown, giving anything a red hot go is probably the enduring attribute from that period of my life until now. I'll always try anything once. I will always give anything in front of me a red hot go. It won't be for, for want of trying. It won't be for a lack of curiosity. So I think that's probably the most enduring or that's probably the connecting thread. So if we jump into your career then, right? Fast forward many years, you kind of jumped around Southeast Asia wearing a lot of different hats on a lot of different brands in a lot of different countries. Are there any kind of defining or early career moments that, that you look back on and you, you found some real lessons in? The one thing that I always think about from the early part of my career, from my time at P&G is how deeply focused PNG was on the consumer. And that for me has been such a valuable lesson. It has been such a 
such a central focal point in so many other things that I've done, whether it's then subsequently working at Meet Johnson and thinking about our consumers there, whether it's working with customers in my various roles at Google and thinking about things from really a customer-centric perspective, or whether it's sort of thinking about products as we design products at Google, really being very user-centric in, in how we design products. I think just the focus on consumer is probably the biggest, most valuable lesson that I got from those 11 years at PNG. Are there any particular moments or stories or kind of watershed things that you saw in a market or on a campaign? Yeah, there's so many. One that comes to mind immediately is my first role at PNG was I was one of the assistant brand managers for a brand called Safeguard, which is this antibacterial soap, which is huge, huge in the Philippines. I spent a lot of time in the Philippines through the couple of years that I was working on that. And spending time in the Philippines, we met a lot of consumers. We went into their homes. We spoke to them about their lives, about just what challenges they face on a daily basis and so on. It wasn't just about sort of the soap, but just about their lives more broadly. And that really opened my mind to a huge spectrum of how people live and what challenges they face and how every little thing that they bring into their lives should really play a role in making their lives a little bit better. And I don't know if a bar of soap necessarily makes your life that much better, but it just sort of gave me a deeper appreciation for the entire spectrum of humanity and how people lived and and, and the kind of struggles they had. And what I found fascinating about that, that experience as a young assistant brand manager was that we have such a wide variety of life experiences that people have across different countries, different cultures, and so on. But at the same time, there are such amazing common golden threads that sort of bind us together as humanity, whether it's love for our family, aspiring for a better life for our kids than the lives we've had, and so many others. There are so many golden threads that sort of bind us together. So it was really at a sort of these realizations at a human level that I think have been a really rich memory from all of those experiences meeting consumers. I want to jump in a little bit because you were a young Indian man working actively in markets like the Philippines, like Vietnam, like Laos, throughout the, the beginnings of your career. Were there contrasts that you saw or even uncomfortable moments as someone not from that country being thrown into another country to figure it out? Or was it just kind of super easy because there are so many cultural similarities across Southeast Asia? Actually, Southeast Asia is incredibly diverse. There are so many different cultures within Southeast Asia. So, so yes, it is, it is incredibly diverse. I'd say, of course, there were challenging moments that were driven by a lack of familiarity. But I prefer to look at it sort of the other way around, which is being an outsider in any situation gives you the ability and the luxury to be the observer, to be the dispassionate observer. And I find that to be an incredible privilege. Right, whether it's sort of traveling around Southeast Asia, whether it was then living in Australia for a couple of years, or whether it's being in Africa now, being the outsider can be sort of viewed as a challenge or as a negative and so on and so forth. But I like to view it as a position of privilege where you are able to be the observer and look at things dispassionately and really soak in the stimulus that you have around you. 
What was one of the kind of most aha moments that you had in those years? Something that shook your system a little bit, something that was so different, something that was so foreign. My most aha moments were really related to how similar we are rather than how different we are. I think there's a lot of, especially today, there's so much polarization across so many different facets of our life. And I think we shine that light on our differences. But like I was alluding to earlier, for me, the big aha moments were really around how similar we are. And that's been fascinating for me. I've been lucky in that right from sort of the PNG days and then my career after that. I've worked in, in, in environments that are incredibly diverse in so many different ways. And all of that diversity has actually given me an appreciation for how much we have in common, how many bridges we have between us. And I think it's important to shine a light on the commonalities, on the bridges, on the similarities we have alongside celebrating the differences we have. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Some of those, there's the actual philosophical similarities, love of family, advancement for the next generation. But then there's just the minutia of our day that we have in common. And you've transitioned from bars of soap to formula for babies and to technology. And technology is this undercurrent in our entire world, even though, as you said, a large portion of the world has not had the opportunity to embrace this technology. But what has that shift been like for you to go from household cleaning products to technology enablement? I mean, those are two very different markets, but it is kind of the connective tissue of thing, no pun intended, of this world. What, what have been the shifts and the differences you've noticed between those industries? You know, of course, there are there are plenty of differences between all of these industries. And, and yes, on paper, it looks like sort of massive leaps with very little in common. But in reality, the way I also I think about what's happening from a technology perspective is I think it's easy to get obsessed with the next new technology. It's easy to get sort of it's easy to get swayed by the new jargon that comes around and the next new piece of tech that comes around. But I think what is in common with I guess the world of soap and shampoo is What's the problem that, that you're solving? Right? One of the things I talk about when people ask me about trends and technology and so on, I'm, I always sort of go back to it. It's less important what the technology trend is. It's more important what the problem is and what's the best solution for that problem. I think we need to get more problem-centric in how we talk about technology rather than talking about technology for the sake of technology, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It's not the shiny object. It's what are you enabling? What's what's the problem you're solving? So you are solving a pretty big problem right now in technology. You've In the last few years, you've gone from your home of Southeast Asia <laughs> to working on everything across industries to moving into a true developing and growing market for tech and the internet and adoption. And, and Google's making some pretty in, big investments there. And it's interesting because Africa is honestly, not the final growth market, but it is the biggest growth market I think we have in this world on so many levels. Can you talk through that? When you got that phone call, why did you jump at it? Or what was scary about it? So let me start with the scary part. The scary part was really sort of coming into the unknown. I had never lived in Africa before. I'm certainly not an expert in Africa. So the scary part was really sort of going into the, into the unknown. But the reason I was really, really excited about this opportunity to move to Africa was was exactly the same. It was a part of the world that I knew very little about. 
And there was no better way of experiencing this part of the world than living here, working alongside people from all across the continent. And it's been a fascinating, fascinating journey. The other thing is what I mentioned earlier about the fact that there's a billion people here who have yet to experience what the internet can do. And for me, that whole question, again, about what kind of internet they will experience, what they will do with the internet, how they will interact with the internet is just such an incredibly profound and fascinating thought. So yeah, those are probably the reasons why I was incredibly excited about this opportunity when, when I got that call. What's been the biggest challenge? What Can you tell a story of something that kind of was very unexpected once you got your feet on the ground? Oh, there's plenty, there's plenty of challenges that the continent is facing as far as connectivity is concerned and so on. But one of the things that I have found to be quite a surprise when I first came to, came to Africa was just the incredibly high cost of data on the continent, right? So when you think about the internet, when you think about connectivity, there's, there's really sort of a few different layers to it, right? So you've got to think about availability of networks. Am I in an area that is covered by a network, right? And the various... And that being a mobile yes, network, that's right. correct? So that, that's the first question, right? And over the last few years, we've seen tremendous progress from that. The telcos and various infrastructure players have done an amazing job of moving that forward. So that is, it's still an issue in some parts of the continent, but that is less and less of an issue. Then the next question is, okay, if, I, if I'm covered by a network, can I get access to a smart device? Or can I get access to a smartphone? Now, while smartphones are becoming cheaper every year, it's even a low-end smartphone is pretty expensive for the average person in many parts of Africa. So then the challenge, the tech challenge then becomes, how do you make smartphones more accessible to more people? How do you get more devices into more hands so that they have a way to get onto the internet? And then once you start sort of thinking about that challenge, then the next challenge that pops up is, how do you put data into more hands, right? So I, I'm covered by a network, I have a smartphone, but now how do I get access to data? And data is incredibly expensive on the continent, which is so counterintuitive. And there's many different reasons for that. It's a very complex issue. But that is probably the one thing that truly, truly stood out for me in the tech landscape compared to a Southeast Asia or an India or any other part of the world that I was familiar with. Yeah, we almost, we almost take all three parts of that infrastructure, those, all three layers for granted. And I think some of it is is income disparity because in developed markets or further developed markets, we do pay a cost for these things, but relative to our income, it's just kind of a tax that we accept as much as buying the grocery. But there are real choices when when the costs are higher as a percentage of kind of the household income. What I found fascinating in Africa is it, it's, yes, data costs as a percentage of uh, household incomes, is it, that's really high. But even on an absolute basis, if, I'm, if I think about dollar per gig, some African countries are among the world's top 10 most expensive absolute data cost countries in the world. So, so yeah, it is, it is a massive challenge. That only exacerbates exactly. it, right? So if the actual unit cost is higher and then how it fits into kind of household basket, right, it becomes prohibitive. And now a word from our sponsor, me, Raman Segal one of your favorite Learnings from Leaders co-hosts. 
As you may already know, I actually host another podcast on race and gender called Modern Minorities with my co-hostess with the mostest, Sharon Lee Tony, where we're out to create greater empathy and understanding in the world alongside folks who look and live differently from us. Modern Minorities is a show where each week my longtime pal Raman and I uncover common and uncommon truths that we all need to hear for our majority brains and ears. Yeah, Sharon and I have spoken to doctors, lawyers, directors, comic creators, VCs, startup hustlers climate activists, angry Asians, getaway car drivers, politicians, athletes, chefs, writers, and even more than a few PNG alumni. Folks who are black, brown, white, gay, straight, and everything in between. Past guests have included comedian Margaret Cho, community policing mayor Svante Myrick, Representative Jennifer Gom Gershowitz, Southern Poverty Law Center journalist Geraldine Mariba, Good Talk author Mira Jacob, Peloton instructor Sam Yeo, comics creator Jean Lu Yang, PNG alumni voices like Kenyatta Nelson, Stefan K. James, Ida Abdelkani, Rajiv Satyal, Andrew Tarvin, Matt Story, Naveen Gupta, and many, many more from the PNG family and beyond. We've even talked about Ramadan, Diwali, Lunar New Year's, Black History Month, Kamala Khan, and Robin being queer. It's like we're trying to solve racism with the podcast. Challenge accepted. So check out Modern Minorities at modmypod.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Remember, we're all modern minorities, but we're no one's model minority. And now, back to our show. So I just want to ask, I want to dig in and geek out a little bit. So Google recently announced a $1 billion investment in Africa over the next five years. How are you addressing all three of those layers? Is it just about putting balloons in the sky and giving out Android phones? Or are there more kind of systemic things that you're trying to put in place to kind of lower the cost? Yeah, look, it's a really exciting time for us. We made this announcement about investing a billion dollars over the next five years on the continent. So we're super excited about that. It's broadly, we're, we're really looking at this investment in three main areas, if you will. The first one is around connectivity. And I talked about sort of the three layers of connectivity. Within connectivity, we're investing quite heavily in building infrastructure. So we're laying a subsea cable that extends from Lisbon in Portugal all the way down to South Africa. With So this is hard infrastructure. Yes, this okay. is hard inf- infrastructure. So, and we've also got this cable landing in Nigeria, Namibia, St. Helena, and then South Africa. And this cable brings in 20 times more network capacity into Africa than the last cable that was built to serve the region, right? So it's a substantial upgrade, if you will. So that's sort of one area we're looking at as far as connectivity is concerned. Then we're also looking at the challenge I talked about as far as the cost of devices is concerned. We're, we're looking at that very closely. Last year, we ran a pilot with the largest telco in Kenya called Safaricom. And what we did there was we introduced a new feature within the Android operating system that enabled the partner, in this case, Safaricom, to sell devices with a finance plan, right, on installments. And that wasn't available prior to that. And what that does is it brings down the upfront cost of acquiring a device really, really substantially. So now you can acquire 4G-capable device, a decent smartphone, at roughly two cents a day, right? So that suddenly makes smartphones a lot more accessible. And we're looking at expanding that. We're taking the success of that pilot out to various other countries with various other partners. So that's how we're sort of thinking. Those are a couple of examples of how we're thinking about connectivity. The second pillar that we're looking at, which is something that I'm really, really excited about, is how we invest in entrepreneurship on the continent. Now, again, there's a few different pieces within this. 
Africa is a continent of small businesses, right? So one of the things that we've seen, especially with the pandemic, is that small businesses have really been disproportionately impacted. And one of the things that we're doing there is we're sort of bringing in really low interest loans along with a partner and making about $10 million of low-interest loans available to SMBs across a number of countries on the continent. But beyond that, we're also doing a ton of work with the startup ecosystem, right? And this is, this is what I'm really, really pumped about. We have a pretty nascent but very vibrant startup ecosystem on the continent. And we've seen venture capital pick up pace over the last few years. So we're, we're seeing a good momentum in venture capital inflows over the last few years. So outside private partners, nurturing and putting seed capital into new small businesses that are tech enabled. Exactly. And while this is picking up pace, it's still nowhere close to where it should be. So we're still, if you compare to other sort of comparable regions, we still have substantial amount of headroom as far as venture capital needs are concerned. So there isn't anywhere near enough capital on the continent just yet. What are comparable regions? How would you define that? So if I look at, let's say, an India. Now, India is a far more, I'd say, a, a little bit further in their journey as a startup ecosystem. But if I look, look at a comparison to India, India raised, in the last year, India would have raised roughly five to seven times more venture capital than the continent of Africa, comparable sort of population sizes, yeah, 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 yeah. comparable average incomes, and so on and so forth. Do you think some of that is like momentum and perception? There have been exits in India. You've seen massive growth. India kind of exporting talent in brands. So VC money kind of wants to chase ideals and case studies of successes. And maybe that hasn't been nurtured enough in Africa. Is that where you think kind of the disconnect is? I think that is a part of the issue. I think it's a deeper problem and it's a, it's a many-headed challenge. But we start, what we're starting to see now is some of that momentum that we saw in India maybe six, seven, eight years ago. And we're starting to see that kind of momentum pick up. So I'm really, really optimistic about what the future holds. And from our, you know, out, out of that one billion fund, that, uh, one billion investment that we've just announced, within that, we've also announced a $50 million Africa investment fund to invest in growth state startups on the continent. So really, really excited about that. I've, I've come across so many incredible founders so many incredible developers on the continent, and I'm really optimistic about what that ecosystem will do. You know, one of the things I've talked about in various forums is I don't think anyone else is better placed than young founders and young developers in Africa to solve some of Africa's most profound challenges. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's as far as sort of supporting entrepreneurs is concerned. And then the third pillar we have is really renewing our nonprofit commitments on the continent. Over the last three or four years, we've deployed roughly $20 million through nonprofits that are working on some, on some of the continent's most pressing challenges, especially focused on young people and women. Looking forward, we are going to be deploying about $40 million over the next five years through various nonprofit partners, again, with a disproportionate focus on women and children. Well, it's interesting with Google's kind of an investment in the market, it almost signals to the broader market that... There's opportunity in Africa. Google's making a bet. So other people might feel more comfortable making that bet as well. You talk about some of the challenges, not just that local entrepreneurs are solving on the ground, but also kind of nonprofit investments you guys are making. What are some of the fundamental challenges, both from a infrastructure and a nonprofit standpoint? I would imagine a lot of it has to do with education. But what are the problems and the challenges that the entrepreneurs you're investing in solving? Can you give a few examples? 
So as far as entrepreneurs are concerned, it's it's really fascinating to, to, to watch the evolution of the startup ecosystem here because mm. we've seen more than half the venture capital that's been deployed in Africa over the last three years has gone into fintech. Now, mm-hmm. stepping back, the way I think about innovation is, if you think about innovation on a spectrum, one end of the spectrum is the kind of innovation we've seen in a lot of Western markets where sort of innovation comes in, tech innovation comes in and disrupts existing paradigms, right? Think about e-commerce and Amazon and the disruption of physical retail or think about Airbnb. A better, better, faster, cheaper of an existing thing that we already have. Exactly. But in Africa, the opportunity for tech to come in and innovate is quite different. We're talking about disruption of dysfunction. Right? Not disruption of existing industries, but disruption, disruption of dysfunction. So, And that sort of opens up two opportunities. It opens up the opportunity to make a more meaningful, more substantial, and a faster impact through technology. And it also opens up the possibility of more innovation being adopted more quickly. Right. So as an example, if you think about mobile payments, right? Africa has more mobile money accounts. It has more mobile money transactions. It has more players in the mobile money industry. It has a higher mobile money transaction value than any other region in the world, right? Because you have people getting, this is kind of their first financial instrument versus in the West, we're disrupting our existing flows. Exactly. And when you're thinking about disrupting existing industries, you will have sort of entry barriers. You will have existing players who have set up, inertia, set up inertia, modes yeah. and that kind of thing. In this case, you have a problem and then you have a solution that is potentially enabled by technology. And if it's a meaningful solution that is enabled by technology, it will get adopted very, very quickly. So you start seeing momentum in a tech business really quickly. So a lot of people are wondering, massive tech companies are making these investments in new markets. Some of the things you mentioned you guys are doing. What is the pushback that you guys hear and how do you address that? Why are the big companies doing it versus the governments, right? Private, public, NGO, et cetera. Has there been pushback to the agenda of a big company like a Google? And, you know, there's been pushback on some of the other big companies trying to make internet technology and infrastructure investments in the continent. I don't know that there's been pushback as much as there's been scrutiny and, and a curiosity around why they're doing this. Right. And I think that's only natural. And that's, in fact, the right thing to do. There should be scrutiny around around large companies like Google and others that are making investments in a region. I think that's perfectly legitimate and perfectly normal. But outside of that scrutiny, I wouldn't necessarily call it pushback. The way I think about this is, I think what companies like Google need to be doing, and I'm feeling really optimistic about sort of the direction of travel that we have at this point is that we've got to be very, very sensitive to the fact that we don't know Africa as well as African industry does, right? So one of the things that we've been focused on very deeply is how do we build deep, meaningful partnerships as we think about the role that we can potentially play on the continent to help build an open, vibrant internet ecosystem, right? So we're very clear about the fact that there's very few things we can actually do on our own. We've got to partner with incredible local players, with whether it's 
in the startup ecosystem with incredible local founders and entrepreneurs, whether it's in government with progressive governments that are keen to embark on a digital transformation journey, whether it's other players in the private sector, be it telcos, be it financial institutions, and so on. So we're constantly on the lookout for local players who have shared values with us, who are as interested as, as, as us in building an open and vibrant internet ecosystem. And I think that's crucial. I think if a company comes in with a bit of a savior complex, mm-hmm. that for me is, that reeks of something that we want to stay very, very far away from. It sounds like it's more of a grow together long-term partnership versus yeah, just coming in and kind of to the victor go the spoils, right? Exactly. So I want to shift a little bit more to your own personal life along this kind of career journey, including your recent years in Africa. Like me, you're a, a father of young kids, and you have taken the family on a whirlwind journey. It's not about balance, but how you kind of manage that family expectations on this adventure, because it sounds like a very challenging role with a lot of change to your life almost every every year, every other year. How have you guys managed that as a family, jumping around the world, working on crazy things? Before we moved here, so we have two boys. When we first moved here, they were one and three. Now they're three and five. Very, very energetic. They keep us constantly on our toes. But before we moved here, obviously, there was this whole question of, hey, do we want to do this? We've got two young kids. This is a big move. And one of the things that Carissa, my wife, and I discussed is what kind of family do we want to be? What are the kind of experiences we want to give our kids? Yes, they're very young at the moment, but what is the kind of tone we want to set as they embark on their sort of own life journeys? And that sort of led us very quickly to the conclusion that we've got to do this (laughs) because that's the kind of family we want to be. We want to be the kind of family that seizes the day. That's the kind of example we want to give our boys about how they should sort of go on and live their life and make difficult choices. That was, we had plenty of conversation around that. But once we sort of asked that question around what kind of family we want to be, the choice became amply clear from there. And honestly, having been here for a little over two years now, I'm incredibly grateful that we made that choice. It's been such a privilege to be on the continent for the last couple of years. And It's also been fantastic being in South Africa all through the COVID pandemic, because while that's sort of thrown up its own set of challenges, it's also sort of created the opportunity to see the world through a very different lens to explore a lot of South Africa. There's been no international travel happening over the last couple of years. So we've had the opportunity to then explore this incredibly beautiful country a fair bit. And yeah, I have nothing but gratitude for the fact that we made that decision. While your boys, about the same age as as our kids, are quite young, is there anything you would say that they've learned from you? That's a hard question. I think only time will tell. (laughs) (laughs) And time will also tell whether whether they've learned good things or not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's show, don't tell, right? It's not what you tell them, it's what you show them. And and I think that's that's really clear to kind of like the fundamental example of, of your life choices that you and your wife are making. I guess we've touched on it a couple of times. It has been a particularly unusual, crazy, challenging couple of years. As a purpose-driven leader, someone who's leading large organizations, doing big things, what advice would you give to our leaders, not just in the corporate world, but 
at a government and a macro level, what advice would you give to our leaders if you could sit, sit down with them on kind of how to, how to face the challenges we face today? I think the first thing that comes to mind is be mission-driven, right? And take the time to articulate why it is that you sort of wake up every morning and go to work and do the job that you do. And it can't be about how do we generate a billion dollars in sales? How do we deliver X returns or whatever whatever the metric is? It can't be KPI-driven. It has to be mission-driven. That's what sort of wakes me up every day and gets me to work, even if getting to work is sort of moving from one room to the next and sitting in front of the screen. <laughs> that for me is sort of the mission that I think being mission-driven is an incredibly em- empowering thing to do. And it also helps you set a North Star, set a North Star for the teams that are looking at you for direction, for guidance, for the direction of travel. So be mission-driven is probably the one thing that has served me really well over the years and that I always recommend to leaders that I work with to do. That's great. Well, Nathan, since we've got to wrap up soon, we want to jump into some fun, quick questions. What would you say is something about you that surprises people? I've been in a Bollywood film. <laughs> okay, I need a name or can I just find that on IMDb? No, you won't find it on, on IMDb. I had a bit part. It was a speaking part, but it was a bit part in a Bollywood film. And I will absolutely not name that Bollywood film because it's not a particularly good one. If, if, I, <laughs> if I can say that. You can hide in the numbers because even if I watched one Bollywood film a day, it would take me several thousand years to get through the entire catalog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's normally surprising for most people. What's your go-to media escape? Are you more of a movie, book, or TV guy? Ooh, it's a close tussle between a book and live sport. All right. I'm guessing that live sport would be a cricket match on the world stage. Well, cricket, cricket or football. All right. Well, maybe I should call it soccer. <laughs> Talk about the kind of football that, that you actually use feet. Got it. Got it. Well, what about books? What would be a book that you would give a friend? Ooh, all sorts, to be perfectly honest. I'll read almost anything. One of my recent favorites is anything by a Nigerian author called Chimamanda Ngozi Ediche. She's incredible and she tells incredible stories about life in Nigeria. And it's almost like being there. She's an incredible author. That's amazing. We'll have to check her out. If you had infinite resources to go do or learn any one new thing, what would that be? Learn any one new thing. Probably learn how to fly a plane. All right. Who is someone out there that you would still want to get coffee with? The great Nelson Mandela, 100%. What would you ask him? While I've read the story of his life, I've read different perspectives on it, I'd love to hear how he found the resilience and courage and single-minded determination, you know, the sense of mission. I talked about mission earlier, how he found that sense of mission to go through what he did and still stay squarely focused on that mission. If you could give one piece of advice to the next generation of leaders, one piece of advice or a challenge, what would that be? Focus on big problems. Don't sweat the small stuff that won't matter in the longer run, right? Are you spending most of your energy solving the biggest problems that you can potentially solve? And how do you cut out the noise as you're doing that? That's great. Well, Nathan, this has been so much fun catching up and going deep on the work you're doing in Africa. So thank you so much for making the time for the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. 
For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. Now here's a preview of next week's episode. So here I am losing an election, and it really did make me think, what's next? I had to leave Procter & Gamble to run for the state house, and I realized I needed something that had social impact to make education more equitable, reduce poverty, issues that mattered a lot to me. So I talked to a woman who was trying to improve communication in schools and really engage parents in a way that they hadn't. So what she needed was a partner to really help her grow it, scale it, take on much more of the business and operations. So we became partners in this journey of growing a game changer for schools to hear from parents in a different way. That's it for this week. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Andrew Tarvin. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG alumni podcast. We'll see you next time.